You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our amazing supporters at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts and by the Your Brain on Facts book, available for pre-order now at yourbrainonfacts.com slash book, chock full of articles that have never and will never be included in the podcast. Order yours today. Dissolve one packet of lemon jello in one can or one cube's worth of beef bouillon. Add lemon juice and allow to cool. Add three hard-boiled eggs, diced, one cup diced celery, half an onion, grated, one cup Miracle Whip, and one can of corned beef, chopped. Chill until set, slice, and serve. Congratulations, you've just made corned beef luncheon salad. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Use it up, wear it out, make it do or do without, my grandmother would say. I thought that was a clever saying from her side of the family, but it was actually a slogan from World War II, encouraging the public to use fewer resources so more could be diverted to the war effort. We're all getting a taste of that as we're hunkered down, unable to shop at the spur of the moment, and much more limited in our choices when we do. Thankfully, we do have precedent to fall back on. After all, people are still alive today who made it through the Great Depression as children. The Roaring Twenties came to an abrupt stop with the stock market crash of 1929, which saw billions of dollars evaporate into thin air. The crash wasn't the sole cause of the Great Depression. There were things like the Dust Bowl, wherein incorrect farming methods turned the fertile American plains into a desert. But the crash did act to accelerate the global economic collapse. By 1933, Nearly half of America's banks had failed, and 30% of the workforce was unemployed. You had to make the most of what you had, and you had to get good at that fast. Two women helped struggling homemakers to be able to feed their families, Eleanor Roosevelt and Aunt Sammy. Beginning in 1926, Aunt Sammy had a popular weekday radio show called The Housekeeper's Chat, about cooking and other domestic concerns, as well as chit-chatting about whatever else was going on at the time. Aunt Sammy was very popular, especially in rural areas. Thousands of people wrote in to her for recipes. By 1932, 194 stations broadcast Aunt Sammy's show, and she published Aunt Sammy's Radio Recipes, parenthetically, The Great Depression Cookbook. It would be the first cookbook published in Braille, interestingly enough, though I struggle to think of how difficult it would be to cook on a wood or old-timey gas stove without good eyesight. Aunt Sammy's recipes were meant to be simple, healthy, and easy to cook. She's even credited with helping broccoli find widespread acceptance, prior to which it was only found in insular Italian neighborhoods. Aunt Sammy helped many wives and mothers through the Great Depression. But once that was over, the country was back on its feet, people lost interest. The show was cancelled sometime in the 1940s, though sources don't agree when exactly. There's one other fact about Aunt Sammy that's worth mentioning she didn't exist. In the latter half of the 20s, the Department of Agriculture's Bureau of Home Economics created a wife for Uncle Sam, the uncreatively named Aunt Sammy. The character was voiced by different women at each individual radio station. That way, the listener would hear an accent similar to their own and feel more connected to Aunt Sammy. Three women worked behind the scenes at the USDA to prepare the script each week that all the regional Aunt Sammys would use. Fanny Walker Yeatman tested recipes, 
Josephine Hemphill wrote the chatty portions of the show, and Ruth Van Demmen coordinated all of the menus and recipes. The other woman who guided homemakers through was the very real First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt. When Franklin Roosevelt entered the White House in 1933, a record number of people were hungry. But being president is not without its perks, and the first family ate well, even extravagantly, while people stood in bread lines. Eleanor Roosevelt, who didn't know how to cook, realized that the way she and the president ate in the White House had the potential to influence and even help the nation through the Depression. She hired an acquaintance, Henrietta Nesbitt, whose husband was out of work, to be the new White House housekeeper. Housekeeper at that time, more like how we use the term homemaker today and not as we use a euphemism for cleaning lady. Nesbitt and Roosevelt retooled the entire kitchen, installing modern appliances and coaxing the skeptical White House staff to use them. This was the first kitchen in America, and it wasn't even sanitary, recalled Nesbitt in her memoir. Meanwhile, Eleanor turned to home economists for menus that would balance nutrition and economy. The healthiest recipes in the world wouldn't help people if they couldn't afford the ingredients. What's more, she resolved to serve these humble dishes in the White House. Her efforts were covered by national newspapers and followed closely by housewives. There was a catch. These nutritious, economic meals were awful. The first kitchen was turning out some of the most unpalatable meals in modern memory. The president himself was usually the test subject for these new dishes, and he obligingly choked them down. Things like deviled eggs with tomato sauce and prune pudding. In place of lavish dishes, the White House table was the stage for things like spaghetti with boiled carrots, cold jellied bouillon, and bread and butter sandwiches. They served so much mutton, that being grown sheep, which is cheaper than lamb because it's much tougher, that it became a joke throughout Washington. The First Lady experimented with foods like milkorno, a mix of dried milk powder and cornmeal developed by Cornell University. Milkorno could be eaten as a gruel-like dish or worked into recipes. I was not brave enough to research what those recipes might be. The bland meals became so notorious that visitors to the White House would eat before they went. Nutrition, not taste, was paramount in the time of soup kitchens and bread lines, and Eleanor Roosevelt was trying to use her table as a way of encouraging and inspiring other Americans to get through this uniquely challenging historical moment. It was just as well they got used to eating a limited range of food, because FDR's presidency also included World War II, and the Roosevelts ate rationed food just like everyone else. Roosevelt's White House ate modestly in an act of culinary solidarity with the people who were suffering, Jane Ziegelman, the co-author of A Square Meal, told the New York Times. Here's a sampling of menu items the first family and the public in general might have enjoyed. In massive bunny ears. Spaghetti with carrots and white sauce. The sauce was basically just milk. Meatless loaf made with peas, oatmeal, peanuts, rice, and or cottage cheese, whatever you could get your hands on. Mulligan stew. Any animal you could kill or find dead with whatever veggies you could manage. Or anything that would keep hunger at bay for a few hours without killing you, like sawdust. It was reportedly created by the massive homeless population during the Depression, where people in homeless or migrant worker camps would pool their resources so that everyone could eat. None of my sources mention where the name Mulligan might have come from. We do know the name origin of another stew, Hoover stew. Herbert Hoover had been elected just in time for the crash, 
but unlike the Roosevelts, he continued to live the good life in the White House. Shantytowns became Hoovervilles, and the soup from soup kitchens became Hoover stew. The weirdest one of all, in this reporter's opinion, was peanut butter in baked onions. It was a whole onion, hollowed out, stuffed with peanut butter, and baked. Just because we have two things on hand doesn't mean we should eat them at the same time. As Ziegelman succinctly put it, peanut butter has nothing to say to a baked onion. Some recipes sound like they shouldn't work, but surprisingly do, like mock apple pie. Apples weren't readily available, but Americans weren't willing to give up their iconic apple pie. The apples in mock apple pie were actually Ritz crackers, and it worked. If you're not already familiar with YouTuber Emmy Made in Japan, I'll link her Hard Time series in the show notes and on the website. She tries all kinds of dishes from times of deprivation, including hot water pie, grapefruit peel steak, toast soup, and even the Haitian dirt cookies, which you can hear more about in episode number 94, My Name is Mud. While we can be grateful that recipes like ketchup soup and peanut butter and mayonnaise sandwiches are behind us, some food created during the Depression is still with us. Meatloaf is a comfort food classic, and shaping food into loaves was a go-to during the Great Depression. The same goes for casseroles, which were a good way to use up odds and ends, or to mask less palatable ingredients. The Depression also gave us the mother of all comfort food, Kraft macaroni and cheese. Or Kraft dinner for my friends up north. In 1937, Kraft heard about a salesman from the Tenderoni Macaroni Company of St. Louis, a Scottish émigré named Grant Leslie, going rogue and selling his noodles with packets of grated Kraft cheese attached. They hired him to promote the concept and started selling it for 19 cents for four servings. It wasn't only helpful during the Great Depression, but also during World War II, because it required only a small amount of rationed milk, and you could get two boxes for one ration coupon. More about that later. Somewhat less beloved, and in my opinion unfairly maligned, is the infamous canned meat product, Spam. Created in the late 1930s, Spam was dubbed the Miracle Meat. It was affordable, versatile, and didn't require refrigeration. Spam was a way to use a cut of meat, pork shoulder, that was previously thrown out. By 1940, it was in about 70% of American households, was a regular part of soldiers' rations, sometimes for all three meals in a day, and was sent by the ton to Britain and the Soviet Union. Millions of pounds were ultimately sent overseas. The recipes remained unchanged, with the exception of the addition of potato starch to soak up the gelatin goop layer. What has changed, though, is the origin story for its name. Hormel has officially said that it stands for shoulder of pork and ham, and later they said it was a portmanteau of spiced ham. Ask past and present soldiers who have to eat it on the regular, and they'll tell you that it stands for something posing as meat. One popular food wasn't invented during the Depression, but was permanently changed to the version we know today. Behold the Twinkie. The original Twinkie, introduced in 1930, was golden sponge cake with a banana cream filling. The filling was made with real bananas, which were hard to get during the Depression and almost impossible to get during World War II. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. 
McKissick helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. They were so hard to source that a single banana was once auctioned off in England in 1942 for the equivalent of $125 for one banana. Yeah, but bananas are imported from the tropics. Of course they're hard to get, you say. Okay, well, how about onions? In England, after the Channel Islands fell into enemy hands in 1940, onions became so rare and valuable they were used as fundraising raffle prizes, once fetching $162 for one onion. Anyway, back to Twinkies. Hostess changed the Twinkie filling to plain vanilla, which proved so popular that even after bananas were back on the menu, they kept the filling vanilla. So you figured out how to keep the children fed. Now how are you going to keep them clothed? What if you could tackle both problems at once? Frugality met fashion in the form of flour sack dresses. Before the heavy paper bags used today, flour came in muslin or burlap sacks, which seamstresses had been using to make common household items since the 1890s. By the 1920s, the sacks had gotten a little cuter. Some of them had gingham check or striped patterns. When the Depression hit, the flower sacks were upgraded from curtain material to clothing material. Even if you had no sewing skills, like young girls just learning or widowers forced to keep house, you could turn a flower sack into a dress with as little as cutting a neck hole and two armholes in it. For most, though, the clothing they made was indistinguishable from clothing made from bolt fabric. Manufacturers took note of this practice and began selling their flour in sacks with bright, colorful, cheerful prints. This wasn't generosity as much as it was trying to sway housewives to buy their brand. Some sacks even had patterns on them for stuffed animals or doll clothes. Don't worry about the neighbors knowing your children are wearing flour sacks. The manufacturers started stamping their brand on the bag with ink that would wash out in one try. And it wasn't just flour, either. Animal feed makers noticed and started putting patterned fabric on their bags, too. Hopefully the lady of the house likes the pattern of the feed that the cows prefer, and vice versa. Bonus fact, in response to a female journalist saying Marilyn Monroe was only sexy because of her high-end, expertly tailored dresses, Monroe did a photo shoot wearing a potato sack. Guess what? Still sexy. This is the part of the show I call the gratitude segment, and if you normally jump over it, stay with me for 10 seconds longer. Starting next Saturday, April 4th, Your Brain on Facts will be holding a multi-week trivia tournament that all are welcome to join with prizes like board games, t-shirts, and the Your Brain on Facts book. Look for more details in the next few days on our social media at Facebook and Instagram.com slash Your Brain on Facts and Twitter at Brain on Facts Pod. 
Thanks to loyal fan Erspo for a recent review. He's as clever as a chap with three heads, and he wrote, A truly five-star podcast. I have never given a podcast a five-star rating until now. Everything about Your Brain on Facts is a five-level. The topics are interesting and entertaining. Moxie does a fantastic job in her research and presentation. I swear she could read the telephone book and make it fascinating. The facts never fall flat. They are interspersed with wit and comment, making Your Brain on Facts a truly scrumptious experience that satiates an appetite for nerdy knowledge. Couldn't have said it better myself. Reviews are always appreciated. If you don't use an Apple product or you aren't sure how to leave a review through your listening app, you can search for Your Brain on Facts on the website podchaser.com, not a sponsor, which is essentially IMDb for podcasts. How did you do with last week's Mystery Monday? The clues were a four-legged chicken, kosher food symbols, and new coke. The topic was food-related urban legends and conspiracy theories. Be sure to watch our social media closely each Monday because the first person to guess the theme correctly gets stickers, and you can guess as many times as you like. Life can often be a grind, but that doesn't mean it has to be. Especially not on the Jason and Mindy podcast, where we feature topics that serve as an informative and entertaining break from life's daily grind. Together, Mindy and I have produced over 600 episodes and have been informing and entertaining our listeners for over five years. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, CastBox, and on all of your favorite podcatchers. And you can enjoy us live on CastBox at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time every single Wednesday. Check out the Jason and Mindy podcast today. After the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor drew America into World War II, it became apparent that asking those on the home front to conserve resources wasn't going to work. Restrictions on imported food, shortages of gasoline and other fuels, limitations on the transporting of goods to save rubber for tires, and needing to divert huge amounts of food to soldiers overseas led to the U.S. government's decision to ration essential items. On January 30, 1942, the Emergency Price Control Act granted the Office of Price Administration, the OPA, the authority to set price limits and ration food. By that spring, Americans couldn't purchase sugar without government-issued vouchers. Coffee would require a voucher that November, and by March of the next year, meat, cheese, fats, canned fish, canned milk, and other processed foods were all rationed. Every American was issued a series of war ration books, filled with stamps that could be used to buy the rationed items. The stamps didn't pay for the item, they just proved that you were allowed to buy it. The OPA based the points an item was assigned on its availability. People were allotted 48 blue points to buy canned, bottled, or dried food, and 64 red points to buy meat, fish, and dairy each month. If the item was in stock, of course. Due to changes in supply and demand, as well as disruption of the normal distribution channels, the OPA had to periodically adjust the point values, further complicating an already complex system that required home cooks to plan well in advance. But there were workarounds if you looked for them. Say one of your kids had a birthday coming up, and you really wanted to make them a proper cake. Manufacturers didn't face the same restrictions as individuals for items like sugar, so you could make the cake with Coca-Cola. 
or use red food coloring to hide the fact that there's barely any cocoa powder in what was supposed to be a chocolate cake. Thus, the red velvet cake was born. Rationing was tough for Americans, but it was even harder for Brits. Around 1939, when World War II began, the United Kingdom imported two-thirds of its food. This meant a reliance on 20 million tons of shipping each year. If that shipping was disrupted, Britain would go hungry. It took the Germans no time at all to work that out, and populate the Atlantic with U-boats to sink supply ships coming from the U.S. and countries in Britain's dwindling empire. Enemies are easier to beat when they're starving. To ensure that there would be enough to go around, to ensure resources were distributed fairly, to prevent hyperinflation and to combat hoarding, the government began rationing. Every citizen was issued a booklet, which they took to their local shop and registered to receive supplies. At first, only bacon, butter, and sugar were rationed, but gradually the list grew. Meat was rationed in March of 1940, cooking fat in tea in July, cheese and preserves in May and March the next year. Allowances fluctuated throughout the war, but on average, one adult's weekly ration was four ounces of margarine, one fresh egg and equivalent powdered egg, two ounces butter, four ounces bacon and ham, the equivalent of two pork chops, three pints of milk, four ounces of cooking fat, two ounces of tea, eight ounces of sugar, two ounces of cheese, as well they would get 12 ounces of sweets every month and one pound of preserves every other month. Soldiers, children, and pregnant women were allotted more to give them more calories and nutrients. Other foods, such as canned meat, fish, rice, condensed milk, breakfast cereal, biscuits, and vegetables, were available, but in limited quantities. Sugar is such a devilishly ubiquitous part of our diet, added to foods whether we expect it to be there or not, that it's hard to imagine it being rationed. In the UK particularly, sugar was in short supply. So the Ministry of Food tried to direct people to what it claimed was the next best thing, carrots. They even had a mascot that said so, Dr. Carrot. Carrots weren't just a vehicle for dips or an additive for cake. One sweet shop in London started advertising their toffee-dipped carrots as being much, much better than toffee apples. There was carrot fudge, carrot marmalade, curried carrots, and the so-called carrot-mel custard. People were even encouraged to replace milk with carrot water. I'll just do without, thanks. It was at this time that carrots were used as the explanation for why British pilots were so good at hitting their targets at night. They claimed that carrots improved vision, which covered up the fact that the Royal Air Force was actually using the newly invented radar. That's where we get the persistent, if exaggerated, belief that carrots give you good eyesight. Using what you had to make up for what you lacked should be as much a part of our view of Britons as tea, the queen, and the stiff upper lip. They had mock recipes for seemingly everything. You could serve an entire mock meal, open with a starter of mock crab, mock duck, really sausage meat in the shape of a duck, for the main course, and for afters, mock apricot tart, carrots, of course, with mock whipped cream, and a mock coffee. On the sausage meat, so much bread was used to stretch the meat that it said you didn't know if your sausage needed gravy or marmalade. A new rule of etiquette was adopted. 
One did not ask or tell what the food really was until it had been eaten. One fascinating substitute was using liquid paraffin in place of fat in baking. You had to use a light hand, though, because it would act as a laxative. The idea of rationing wasn't to limit what people ate, but to ensure that they stayed healthy while also providing food for the troops. There were actually minimum requirements for consumption. It was a criminal offense to throw away food, and people did spend time in jail for it. One thing you were certainly required to eat was the national loaf. Bread before the war was made with white flour, as you do, but suddenly soft white flour was hard to come by. Enter national flour, or wheat meal. Not exactly whole wheat, but flour with all of the bran in it. The flour was rough and gray in color. Bakeries were required to use national flour to make the national loaf. Nutritionists praised the bread for its added calcium and vitamins, though they never commented on the taste of it. It was hard, crumbly, the crust was tough, and it would suck all of the moisture out of your mouth. But it was filling, and that's what mattered. You were also required to contribute to the available food by growing your own veggies and, if possible, fruit. The Ministry of Agriculture introduced the Dig for Victory campaign in October of 1939, one month after the outbreak of the war. The campaign aimed to replace imported food with locally grown produce, which would free up shipping space for more valuable war materials and, you know, keep people from starving or getting scurvy. Those without flower gardens to rip out and replace with carrots and rhubarb could rent a bit of land on the cheap, called an allotment. Public parks, the lawns of the Tower of London, even the gardens of the royal family became allotments. The campaign proved to be a roaring success. By 1943, estimates suggest that home gardens were responsible for more than one million tons of produce. By 1945, Britain had almost 1.4 million allotments, and there's actually more demand for them today than there was during the war, with a long waiting list. This may come as a surprise, but Britons actually ate out more during the war than they did beforehand. It wasn't Chinese delivered or curry takeaway naturally, it was the British restaurant. They were set up in commandeered buildings like church halls and social clubs, and were staffed by volunteers, meaning they were cheap to run. British restaurants were originally called communal feeding centers, but Churchill ordered it changed, not because it sounded like a trough, but because it sounded too much like communism. You could get a good, inexpensive meal, but best of all, it didn't count toward your rations. Privately owned restaurants and hotels were ordered not to serve meals with more than three courses, only one of which could contain meat or fish, and must not cost more than five shillings. Normally, I convert things like that to modern U.S. dollars, but I'll be honest, I have no clue how the old British money system worked. The strict policies paid off. Brits actually gained weight during the war. Thanks to things like a shift from wheat to potatoes, a movement helmed by mascot Potato Pete, the average daily caloric intake had risen. The end of the war didn't mean the end of rationing, though. It takes a while for the supply chain to normalize. Rations of pork and cooking fat were actually reduced three weeks after Victory in Europe Day. Tea wasn't derationed until 1952, 
sweets in 53, cheese and fats in 54, and meat, bacon, and ham were rationed until July of 1954, nine years and two months after VE Day. Now, just because you're being bombed doesn't mean that you can let your beauty regimen slide. Women were encouraged to maintain their appearance with the slogan, Beauty is your duty. You had to stay beautiful to boost the morale of the noble Tommy and to thumb your nose at Hitler, who apparently despised makeup, dyed hair, or wearing fur. Plus, it helped to reinforce gender norms, reminding women to look feminine even as they took jobs in factories. Big cosmetic companies bought full-page ads, saying things like, No lipstick, ours or anyone else's, will win the war, but it symbolizes one of the reasons why we are fighting. It was the same idea as pinup girls being seen as patriotic. A woman was giving the troops something to fight for. To drive the point home, one soldier even wrote in a 1941 Vogue article, To look unattractive these days is downright morale-breaking and should be considered treason. Makeup wasn't rationed, but it was subject to a hefty luxury tax that made it impractically expensive. So, like with the mock food, they had to improvise. Beet juice became lipstick or rouge. Boot polish became mascara. Do not try that at home. The women would fill their pockets with flowers and fragrant herbs to make up for the lack of perfume. One wartime beauty hack was discovered by accident. Women would dye their hair with TNT. When it was first made in the mid-19th century, TNT was used not as an explosive, but as a yellow dye. Women working in munitions factories would find themselves dusted with it, which turned their hair, and even skin, bright yellow people started calling them canary girls. Blondes may have more fun, but these blondes also had painful skin rashes, breathing problems, and potentially damage to their liver, spleen, immune system, and more. But now that you're all dolled up, you've got to dress smartly to match. Easier said than done. First, cast your mind back to a time when the average person's entire wardrobe would fit in a single armoire usually two people's entire wardrobe. You probably had a few workaday outfits and your Sunday best. If you needed to buy more clothes, those were rationed as well. Starting in the summer of 41, every citizen of the UK was given 66 coupons that they could exchange for clothing. Different items of clothing had a different coupon value, depending on the time and material that went into making them. A dress might cost 11 coupons, but you'd only have to use two for a pair of stockings, when stockings were available. But as with American food rationing, the coupons didn't pay for the garments. You still needed your own money. What they bought was the right to buy the clothing. New coupons were issued each year, though the amount decreased to only 24 by the end of the war. Children were allotted 10 extra coupons each year to account for growth spurts, and new mothers were given 50 extra coupons to buy things like blankets and baby clothes. This all led to the Make Do and Mend campaign. The British Ministry of Information demonstrated ways in which to make clothing and coupons last, like buying children's clothing that was too big for them so they could grow into it, and set up classes to teach basic seamstress skills. Scarcity of material actually drove fashion trends. Hemlines got higher, because shorter dresses require less fabric. 
Because more of the women's legs were visible, stockings became more important. But stockings were made of silk, or the newly invented nylon, which were needed to make parachutes and other things for the war effort. Not about to leave the house with blatantly bare legs, women would draw a line up the back of their legs with an eyebrow pencil or a grease pencil, so it would look like a seam. Or they would darken their legs with brown gravy powder. One unfortunate side effect of gravy stockings was it tended to attract stray dogs as you walk down the street. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. There was a philosophy in Britain in World War II called the Blitz Spirit, when everyone came together and took care of everyone else in a horrifically frightening time. We could do with a little bit of that. And could someone please explain to me why everybody needs so much toilet paper? Thanks for spending part of your day with me. And stay safe. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.